You may be seated. Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14. And last week and this week, we were having an emphasis on prayer. And this is stemming from our desire based upon uh, 18 months worth of meetings and discussions and deliberations about re-engaging ministry priorities within our church. And the one that we want to begin with is prayer. And the reason for that is, is that what we do together as a church is a spiritual journey. What we do in our lives individually is a spiritual journey. And we cannot separate who we are as Christians and what we do as a church from the reality that we are a spiritual being, a spiritual people in need of spiritual help. And we find that help in prayer. So we want to re-engage the initiative of prayer as an emphasis And so we're in the process of trying to recruit together a team that will lead us into a more concerted effort of prayer corporately and individually. And so last week we looked at what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, but which is in fact the Disciples' Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples to pray. And we learned several important things from this out of Matthew chapter 6. The first one is, is the person of prayer. We are to pray to our Father who is in heaven. Remembering that we have this distinct privilege of talking to the Creator of the universe, not as an impersonal divine being or force or presence, but as our Father who loves us and cares for us and blesses us and desires to use us in building His kingdom here on earth. Secondly, we've looked at the purpose of prayer And the chief purpose of our prayer ought to be to bring glory to His name, to make His name holy. And we do that through the lives that we live, through the work that He does in us and through us, and as we direct others to this great God who has saved us from the depth of our sin. Thirdly, we looked at the plan of prayer. The plan of prayer is to pray for His kingdom to come, literally and figuratively, for His will to be done in our lives and hopefully in an increasing measure in our world just as it is in heaven. How is God's will accomplished? How is it executed in heaven? Perfectly. As Steve alluded to in his prayer this morning, our culture is becoming more vocally opposed to the presence of God in our culture. We have drifted and wandered so far away from our Christian heritage that we are no longer a Christian nation. How could we expect God to bless this nation when we have actually walked away from Him? So we individually, we corporately need to live our lives for Him, praying that His will would be done in us and through us so that God would choose to use a difference in this world through the lives that we live. Fourthly, we learned about the petition of prayer, our daily needs, our daily forgiveness, and our daily deliverance from the presence and the power of evil and the evil one who seeks first and foremost to distract us to disrupt us from giving to Him what He desires, what He deserves, and what we ultimately know is best for us, and that is a complete submissiveness to His will. So having taught the disciples how they should pray, we see in the event of this need for prayer, and Jesus is practicing 
what he had previously taught them, and he taught them how to pray. So in Mark 14, we see Jesus doing what he taught the disciples that they themselves should do. So this is a very familiar event. We looked at this not long ago as we were finishing up the Gospel of John. This is Jesus' prayer while in the Garden of Gethsemane, as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to be looking at verses 32 and through 42 of Mark chapter 14. Read along with me, if you will. They came to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch For one hour, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Verse 41, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. We're going to look at this passage and divide it up into five major points. And I believe that each of these points will emphasize the very practice that Jesus has taught his disciples when he instructed them in how to pray. Number one, we're going to see the exercise of prayer. Verse 32, they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I prayed. So the question that I want to begin with is very simply this. If Jesus needed to pray... Don't we? If Jesus, the one and only, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, who left His rightful place in glory and came in the, in the form of a man in the, through the birth of a baby and lived on this earth, if He needed to pray, how much more so do we need to pray? You see, Jesus didn't just teach From a theoretical perspective, he himself, in his own humanity, needed to pray. Jesus' praying is not a new phenomenon that is exclusively indicated for us here. In fact, the Gospels record many examples of Jesus going off to pray. Every time that Jesus went off to pray... He did the very thing that he instructed his disciples to do. And I believe that it is in these times of prayer that Jesus found the power and the strength and the initiative and the determination to do what the Father had called him to do. On this night, the very purpose for Jesus' incarnation, his coming into the world, was about to be realized. For in about 12 hours, he would be dead He has become the payment for the sin of mankind. And on this night, He is going to get prepared in prayer to to do the very thing that God had sent Him into this world to do. So did Jesus need to pray? 
Absolutely, he did. In his humanity, he fought to keep himself clean and pure and spotless, which would maintain consistency with his deity. We read in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. What does this teach us about the life and the ministry of Jesus? He didn't live and walk in a golden bubble. He lived and walked as a man who was fully human and fully deity, and he struggled to maintain his purity and his holiness. He was tempted in every single way, just as you and I are, but the difference is he maintained his sinlessness. Did he have a choice? He did. Did he fight? He did. And did he pray to find the strength to do that? He absolutely did. We need to pray because we aren't as strong as he is and we aren't as strong as we think we are. I've met some Christians who very dramatically overestimated the strength that they possessed the drive to obey, the the determination to be a faithful child of God, and yet, inconceivably, they find themselves on the wrong side of adultery. They found themselves on the wrong side of some kind of a criminal indictment. The reality is, is that we need to pray because we are not as strong as we think we are. Now, in just a few hours before this event in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they were gathered together at the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, Jesus told them that one of them was going to betray them. It was incomprehensible. What do you mean, one of us is going to betray you? They had no idea how such a thing could happen. They had no idea of who could do such a thing. And Luke records for us in Luke 22, 23 and 24, and they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this. And then it says, and there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. What? I mean, Jesus is the Master. He is the Lord. He is the one they have given their lives to. They have declared, we will follow you to the ends of the earth. We will do anything you ask us to do. What do you mean one of us is going to betray you? And then, just like that, they are arguing amongst themselves about which of them is the greatest. You see, folks, we're weak. We're weak. We need to pray. And it is apart from this praying that the weakness we possess in our unredeemed flesh finds the ability, it finds the strength to grow and grow to the extent that we find ourselves on the other side of something that we never thought possible that we would do. In the chronology of Luke, after hearing of this treacherous act of betrayal, they're caught up in an argument about who was the greatest. They are weak, and they don't recognize just how weak 
they are. Also, at the Lord's Supper, Mark records for us in Mark 14, 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Not convinced of the accuracy of what Jesus has just said, Peter goes on to boast in verses 29 through 31, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. And Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. Every single one of them had overestimated their own strength and staying the course and remaining faithful to him and yet Jesus' prediction, his prophecy was emphatically true that they, in fact, scattered when Jesus was arrested. You see, we need to pray because Jesus needed, needed to pray, and we are nearly as strong as he is. In fact, we are much weaker than we think we are. Therefore, we must be committed to prayer. Number two in our outline is the encouragement in prayer. Verse 33, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. So as Jesus goes to pray, he brings with him Peter and James and John. Now these are the three most prominent of the disciples, perhaps even the most committed by their own estimation, or the ones who consider themselves to be the strongest and the most reliable. Perhaps they were the ones who were the most vocal in the disagreement or argument about who amongst them was was going to be the greatest. These three witnessed his glorious transfiguration, and now they're going to witness the agony of his suffering and prayer. So the encouragement and prayer is this invitation to pray with me. Verse 34, he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. So Mark acknowledges that Jesus was distressed and troubled And I would imagine that the disciples who had walked with Jesus for three years plus would have picked up on this little nuance in his countenance, in his mannerisms, in the way he walked, in the way he talked. I think when you spend the kind of time with someone that these men had spent with Jesus, you begin to learn something about the nonverbal communication, don't you? You can say to your husband, your wife, what's wrong? And they say, nothing. And you go, well, I know that's not true, right? We know by the way someone acts that there's something going on. So they see this, and in the midst of seeing this, Jesus invites them to come and pray with him. And he says to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now that keeping watch is not stand like a bodyguard and protect me from marauders or wild animals. To keep watch is an invitation to pray. So Jesus brings these three deeper into the garden so that they would pray with him, not necessarily by his side, but joining him spiritually in prayer while he prayed. Now notice what Jesus says to them. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I've never, ever, ever had anybody say anything like that to me 
before they've asked me to come and pray with them. If someone came to me and said that, I would go, oh my goodness, what is going on? I'm on full alert. I need to figure out what is going on. I need to pray that the Lord will give me the words to say. And yet Jesus says this to the three innermost group of disciples because Jesus knows that he is about to take upon himself the sin of the world. He would experience a very brief separation and a feeling of alienation from the Father who would crush him as the sin offering for mankind. In the book of Isaiah, which is widely regarded as a passage on the suffering servant, a messianic chapter of prophecy, Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offering, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen to him. His soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. Now, while we are not going to become the ransom for sin, there may be times in your life, there may have already been times in your life, when you would say, I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders. I don't know how I'm going to make it through another day. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever wondered how you're going to make it to the next sunrise? Have you been so overwhelmed with your circumstances that you cried out to the Lord to please come now, to take me home now? I can't do this another minute. Have you ever felt that way? Well, Jesus felt that way with a full prophetic understanding and knowledge that God the Father was going to crush him as a sin offering so that you and I could be forgiven. When we feel the weight of the world on our shoulders, when we don't think we can take another step, we need people to pray with us and we need people to pray for us. Do you believe that to be true? Yes. Here's what it says in Colossians. That's out of order. I'm sorry. Colossians, it didn't make it. Colossians 1.9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, listen, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. My friend, I want to tell you, when the world is crushing you, you need all the spiritual wisdom and understanding that you can muster. You need to cry out for that in prayer. You need other people to be praying for you in that regard. We read in James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. In a context here is spiritual healing. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then Ephesians 6.18, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So we need to pray with one another and we need to pray for one another because we are weak and we need to be strengthened 
in our spiritual being. Jesus encouraged these men to pray with him, and we should follow that example and elicit the prayers of others on our behalf because we need it. Have you ever in your prideful position said, well, I don't think I really need prayer. I think I can handle this on my own. Have you ever said, well, you know, I would like to ask other people to pray for me, but I'm not sure what they might think about that. I might come, off, come across as being weak or immature or uncommitted or maybe this problem or this struggle or this need is really kind of beneath what I believe other people think about me. So I'm just going to do this on my own. You see, what we need to recognize is this. We are all collectively in the exact same boat that we are weakened in our state of still living with our unredeemed flesh. We are still greatly struggling with the constant presence of sin. We are weak in our flesh and we need to be spiritually strengthened through the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us, every single one of us, without exception, are in that same boat. We need to be willing to embrace that, acknowledge that, communicate that, and elicit the prayer support of other people so that we can be who God has called us to be and do what God has called us to do. Individually, and corporately. Number three in our outline, we're going to see the example of prayer. Verse 35. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. People read this verse and they misunderstand what Jesus is actually saying. Some people will conclude that Jesus didn't know he was going to go to the cross, that Jesus didn't really want to go to the cross, that Jesus was just trying to find some other way to accomplish God's plan of redemption other than him being the one upon whom it would be executed. But I want to explain what I believe are the significant points that are within this example of prayer that we see. Number one, Jesus preferred another option. In his humanity, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. He requested that if it were possible, a different method for, for completing the Father's plan of redemption. But did he really know better? Did Jesus really know that there was no other way? Was Jesus hoping that at the last second, God was going to change the plan and pull out a pinch hitter and substitute Jesus for some other way of accomplishing the plan of redemption. Did Jesus really think there was another way? I want to tell you emphatically, no. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he prepared his disciples for his death. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he spoke to the Pharisees and the crowds in parables about his death. Jesus knew that this was the only way, and all Jesus was communicating to the Father was simply this, boy, I wish there was another way, but I know there's not. And so he is agonizing in prayer over what it is the Father has called him to do. Number two, Jesus is being tempted. 
Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has undergone temptation. It is likely that he was tempted repeatedly throughout his ministry. And the reference in Hebrews 4 that we looked at just a few moments ago would not be an all-encompassing reference to when Jesus had completed his 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted by Satan in those three instances where Jesus fought with Scripture. I believe that Jesus was tempted all throughout his earthly ministry to find a, sh- to find a shortcut, to not go, to not say, to not do, go along to get along. So I believe that in this instance, Jesus is very likely being tempted to get out of what the Father had called him to do. But Jesus repeatedly fought temptation through the quoting of Scripture, as we've seen in the Gospel accounts, and also in his times of prayer. I believe that Jesus is fighting this temptation in prayer. So let me ask you this question. Is there a lesson to be learned as Jesus is agonizing in prayer over what the Father has called him to do. Is there a lesson for you and I to be learned in this? Well, of course there is. Prayer becomes a way for us to appropriate and mobilize the truth of God into our lives so that we can successfully fight against our enemy and the strength of the Holy Spirit and accomplish God's purposes in our lives. Let me repeat that. Prayer becomes a way for us to appropriate and mobilize the truth of God into our lives so that we can successfully fight against our enemy in the strength of the Holy Spirit and accomplish God's purposes in our lives. Have you ever prayed Scripture? Have you ever quoted Scripture back to God? Why do you do that? Because you're saying, God, you said this is true. I'm claiming this to be true. I know you're going to be with me, that you're not going to leave me, that you won't forsake me. I know that you love me. I know that you forgive me. I know that you will empower me. I know that you will work this out for my good because I belong to you. When we pray truth back to God, we activate, we mobilize His truth into our lives so that the Holy Spirit who lives in us can strengthen us to stand against the attack of the enemy when we are tempted. If we are not going to mobilize the truth of God into our lives, if we are not going to pray that God would strengthen us in our moment of salvation or our temptation, then you are simply living a lone ranger Christian life and you're just going to wing it on your own and you're going to throw jello against the wall and you're going to hope your commitment sticks. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. We have to have help. And the way that we are going to be helped is by praying the truth of God into our lives in such a way that we can stand in the victory that God has provided for us. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But when you are tempted, the Spirit will do what? He will provide a way of escape. That's either true or it's not true. The fact of the matter is, when you and I are tempted, we either choose to obey God and submit to Him, or we choose to gratify our sinful desires and give in to the flesh. It's that simple. 
Let me continue. Number three, Jesus is communing with the Father. Verse 36a, Jesus is troubled and distressed. He's deeply grieved to the point of death. He knows that the Father is about to crush him for the sin of the world. And he prays in verse 36a, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Jesus instructed the disciples to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's calling on the Father. The term Abba, Father is a term of endearment. It's similar to what a child would call out when he's calling his daddy. Daddy! And here is Jesus, deeply grieved to the point of death, crying out for his daddy. He isn't calling out to an impersonal being. He's calling on his very own daddy. In his darkest moment, in his deepest need, he desired communication, communion with the Father. God was not his enemy. He was not angry with the Father. He was not spewing accusations or insults against the Father. Why are you doing this to me? I didn't deserve this. Surely somebody else could do this. He simply cries out, Abba, Father. He called upon his daddy. Number four, Jesus petitions the Father. Verse 36b, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Jesus recognizes the omnipotence of the Father, that he has the ability to do as he chooses, to enact his plans and prerogatives, since he is the Father, the creator of the universe. Do you see that here? He is the God of the impossible. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup for me. God is able to do far beyond all we ask or think, yet Jesus knew in His Spirit that there was no other way. But for you and I, the lesson in this is that God is our help and our time of need. He is able to come to our side and provide what, he, what we need because of His sustaining presence as our Daddy. And while it may not include a change of circumstance, God promises to be with us every step of the way. Never will He forsake us. Never will He leave us. So when Jesus says to remove this cup, it means that would the Father find another way in His omnipotence to spare me the horror of the cross? Surely God, in Your omnipotence, You could find another way. But Jesus knew there was no other way. In His humanity, He calls upon the all-powerful God to do what only, he, what only He can do, but Jesus doesn't call upon the Father for His own personal gain to spare me from this cup. He's committed to bringing glory to the Father's name as He taught His disciples to pray. And number five, Jesus is committed to the Father's will. Verse 36c, Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is exactly what He taught the disciples to pray. Matthew 6, 7, he said, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. This has been Jesus' commitment from the very beginning to say what the Father tells Him, to go where the Father sends Him, to do what the Father leads Him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, it is no different. We often pray for God to remove the unwanted hardships and circumstances just as Jesus was doing, but do we also express the same submissiveness to the Father's will as Jesus does here. Is that how we pray? Do we pray, God, Father, we pray that you would remove this incredibly difficult circumstance from me, but if this is your will for my life, strengthen me to walk through it, or do we pray, God, I don't know why you're doing this. I can't think of any other person who's less deserving to go through this than me. Surely there's a lot worse people in this world that would have to live through this. Why are you doing this to me? So when Jesus says, yet not not what I will, but what you will, and it being the exact same sentiment of what he said, I'm sorry, the exact same sentiment of what he said in Matthew 6-7, what we're reminded of is this. Our plans can sometimes be off the mark. Can you think that? Sometimes your plans miss the mark. Sometimes we misunderstand what God is leading us to do or calling us to do. Sometimes our desires, our plans are selfishly motivated and we're not aware that they are, even if we assign some spiritual goal to them. But what we should always do when we pray is we should express a submissive commitment to the Father's will, not what I will. I remember times in my life where I was following God by faith, and I would very simply pray, God, if this is not your will, I want you to redirect my steps. I am blind in this. I'm just following you as faithfully as I know how. Please protect me from myself. Not what I will, but what you will. Do you think God's faithful when we pray that? Oh, you better believe it. He's more concerned about us doing His will than we are about our doing His will. Number four in our outline is the exhortation to pray. And He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? So while Jesus is in agony praying, the inner circle, the cream of the crop, is fast asleep. Is it possible that Jesus addresses Peter specifically since he was the most outspoken, out, most outspoken in his unwavering commitment to him? Is it because Peter is the one that overestimated his strength the most? The reality is they couldn't pray for one hour knowing and seeing that Jesus was, was disturbed and troubled as verse 33 identifies and that he had told them that his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death as verse 34 articulates. They are much weaker than they think they are and what their declarations have stated. And while they're snoring and dreaming of their greatness and the kingdom they expect Jesus to inaugurate, Jesus awakens them with a simple urging to prayer because they are weak. Jesus taught us to pray because we're weak. Jesus gives us the example to pray because He needs it, and we need it, and we are weak. Verse 38a, keep watching and praying that you may not come into 
temptation. We are to pray that we won't fall into or that we won't succumb to whatever it is we're being tempted to do. Jesus was praying that he wouldn't give in to the temptation to avert God's plan on the cross. We are to pray that we don't give in to whatever the temptation is that we are facing. Again, we see Jesus reminding them of what he has instructed them to do. In Matthew 6.13, he taught them to pray and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I didn't clarify this as well last time as I should have, but here in verse 13, Jesus states the negative, do not lead, but this does not necessarily imply that the positive is to be expected that God is going to lead us into temptation. So Jesus says it very clearly here, pray that you don't fall into, into temptation. That's the exact same sentiment of Matthew 6.13. Pray that we won't give in to the temptation. And verse 38 states this principle very, very clearly. We are to pray that we don't fall into temptation, which is consistent with what he taught his disciples to pray. These are complementary items. So why does Jesus exhort them to pray? Because they need it. They need to pray. Verse 38b, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, what, is, what does Jesus mean by this? Here's what Jesus means by this. Our unredeemed flesh is incapable of carrying out the desires of the Father. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We in our flesh cannot do what the Father has called us to do. It's impossible. It cannot be done. If we want to see His kingdom come, we need to pray. If we want to see the will of the Father done, we need to pray. If we want to obey on earth as those who are in heaven obey, then we need to pray. God has created a plan and a purpose for us, and if we want to complete it, then we need to pray. This is His church, and we are His people, and if we want this church and our lives to be pleasing to Him, say with me, we need to pray. Because we cannot do it on our own. We need His help. We need His empowerment. We need His guidance. We cannot and we will not do what God desires for us apart from His empowering us through the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Jesus said in John 15:5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. How much is nothing? It is zero. How much is zero? It's nothing. It's nada. It's zilch. It doesn't exist. We can't do anything for the kingdom apart from His work in us, and He is not going to work in us apart from prayer. If we aren't submissive to His will and express a commitment to His will through prayer, then how will we do it? It won't get done. Number five in our outline, the enablement of prayer. Verse 39, 
through 42. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So Jesus goes off to pray, comes back, they're sleeping. He goes off a second time, comes back, and they're sleeping. He goes off a third time, and he comes back, and they're sleeping, and they have nothing to say in their defense. This disappointing scene is repeated. Jesus had been praying. Jesus was agonizing in his spirit to the point of death. And as he communed with his daddy, he comes out of that prayer. And this is what he says, the hour has come. I am ready to walk the journey. I am ready to travel the road. I am ready to do what the Father has sent me into this world to do. The cross is before me. Nothing is going to stop me. I am ready. Let's go. And so as Judas leads this horde of sinful men who will arrest him, who will eventually beat him, who will lead him into the sham trials, Jesus sits before them as a lamb being led to slaughter and he nearly utters not a single word in his defense. Why? Because he was enabled in prayer to do what God has called him to do. Now, when Jesus was arrested, this is not what the disciples thought would happen. They expected Jesus to inaugurate his earthly kingdom, and they were going to inherit some choice positions within the kingdom. And the restoration of Israel would be at hand. And the Romans would be overthrown militarily and politically. And the kingdom of God would be established with the Messiah sitting on his throne. But here come the police and they're going to arrest Jesus. And they're going to take him away. And this is not at all what they thought was going to happen. This is a reminder that our impressions of what is happening around us may not seem like God is at work but we know that He is. We may pray together, and we may feel heaven and earth shake in our midst, and we may put our hands to the plow to begin to follow and do whatever God has called, whatever God has called us to do, and we may see obstacle and obstacle and obstacle, and we might say, wait a minute, God, I thought you were leading us. This is not what at all we expected, yet God is still at work even though there's obstacles, even though there's disappointments, even though there might be failure, God is still at work, even though that may not be our impression. But if we are praying like we should, God will confirm His work in us, He will comfort us during it, and He will glorify Himself through it. We'll either believe that to be true, or we'll say, this is not what I bargained for, I want to be like the Israelites in the wilderness. I want to go back to the way it used to be. I want to be left alone. I don't like spiritual battle. I don't like being on the edge. I just want a comfortable life. 
Is that what God has saved us for? Is that what God has established His church for? No. Because God will guide us, because God will comfort us, because God will empower us, all the rest should be irrelevant. His sustaining presence is all that should really matter. We're going to sing a song in just a minute that I hope will communicate the depth of our hearts that He is able to do in you whatever it is He is designed to do. And we will either prayerfully submit to it or we will rebelliously resist against it. The choice is going to be ours. Pray with me, please. Father, how we give you thanks that you are a faithful and gracious and a merciful God. God, I pray that as you remind us of how fall short, how short we fall of your glory, of your standard, of your desires, God, I pray that we would never question your mercy and your grace, your love and your presence. God, I pray that in the hearts of your children you would hear cries of repentance, cries of dependence, cries of submission as we recognize afresh and anew the God that you are, as we commit ourselves afresh and anew to complete the work that you've begun in us at the moment of our salvation in this church that you have established. Would you do what only you can do so that you alone would receive glory and honor from us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.